Our glorious Father, today your word will show us Christ in his glory, Christ as he is at your right hand, Christ as he is ready to come and reign and rule, and it will show us your plan for the ages in its splendor. Humble us and exalt Christ to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this section of Philippians chapter 2, Paul is urging the Philippians to unity, which involves uh, being united in heart around the gospel, around the person of Jesus Christ. Not unity for unity's sake, but unity for the gospel's sake. And it involves them thinking of others ahead of themselves and not doing anything out of vain glory and selfishness, but with one heart and mind serving Christ together, thinking the same thoughts. And to get them to think this way, he holds out the thinking of Jesus Christ. And he says, look at the way Jesus thought you think like that. He doesn't try to shame them. He doesn't try to uh, reason them into it and pragmatically tell them how much more to their advantage it would be to be this way. But he holds out Jesus Christ, the way he thought, which led to our salvation. And he says, you think like that. And in this thinking that he holds out, Christ Jesus, though existing in the form of God, did not regard his equality with God as a thing to cling to for personal gain, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. And he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And that is our example, Jesus Christ. The way he thought, Paul says, you think. But today, I want to look at the closing verses of this section about Christ. This, maybe it was a hymn, maybe it was a poem. And consider the bigger picture and the aftermath of Christ's incarnation, which really gives us the ultimate purpose and design of why Jesus became man, why the Son of God took on human flesh. Why did he do this? To what end did he do this? Uh, What was the result of Christ humbling himself this way? And where did Christ go after Christmas, after Good Friday, after Easter, and the ascension to the right hand of the Father? What is the career of Christ? Well, these are the things we'll be looking at from God's Word today. Can we keep it simple and deep at the same time? Let's find out. Starting very simply, Roman numeral 1. We will see all of this from the text in Philippians 2, but we'll look at a great deal of Scripture beside. And we will see that there was a plan. Roman numeral 1, there was a plan. Philippians 2, 8. Had you ever noticed this, I wonder? Look first with me at the texts that show that there was a plan. Letter A, the texts. And the first is Philippians 2.8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did that word obedient ever catch your eye? It's the word that is translated uh, submissive. I translate it submissive. He became submissive. Jesus' death on the cross was an act of submission. So stop and ask yourself, submission to what? To the Romans? No. To the apostate Jews? No. This is all according to the plan of God. This tells us there was a plan. Jesus didn't go to death on the spur of the moment. He went to death on the cross because that was the plan of God. And he submitted himself to that plan. And you see this a great deal in his words. In the words of of God about him and in his words about his life. God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but that through him it might be saved. Often John speaks of God sending and Jesus speaks of being sent and coming to do the work that the Father gave him. So he is submitting to a work, a plan that God gave him. 
So we wonder, when did that plan begin? Uh, In our family, we're reading a book that retells the Christmas story, and the author says something like, in getting to somewhere around uh, Noah or Babel, that that God began to think of a plan that it would end up in Bethlehem, and I had to stop and say a few words at that point. He didn't begin thinking about it at Bethlehem. When did he begin thinking about it? Well, go back to the first verse of the Bible with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Words so familiar that I'm afraid sometimes we stop thinking about them and feeling their force. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first, verse in, the first word in Hebrew is bereshith, a preposition attached to a noun, in beginning. Now, what do you think right away when you hear the word beginning? You hear beginning, you think end. Well, was there an end in mind? At the be- of all the ways, I mean, you're going to start a Bible. How are you going to start a Bible? We are being signaled something by the way God the Holy Spirit mo- moved Moses to start the Bible with the word in the beginning. That in this first act, this was an act of beginning. Like when somebody says, all right, let's get started. What do you know? He's got a plan. <laughs> There's something he means to do, so let's get going. When we read a Bible starting in the beginning, That tells us that God began with an end in mind because the antonym, the beginning, is indeed end. And this is not just an act of imagination. Scripture says this. There's a comment on this in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Turn there or not as as you choose, but we'll be there for a moment or two. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10. God says, remember the former things long past. Very literally, he says, the first things from eternity, from the age. From the very beginning, in other words. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Well, there it is. And that word beginning is indeed the first word in the first noun in the Hebrew Bible, reshith. The end from the reshith, from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So at that beginning, God already had a counsel. He already had a good pleasure. And we see it executed from the beginning, beginning with the beginning. It's the beginning of God's story that he's telling from his sovereign decrees. Something already formed in his mind before the first second ticked on the first cosmic clock. So in the beginning... God begins carrying out his counsel and his good pleasure. What we see done is not created and initiated by man. It's it's a result of the decrees of God, the creator and the beginner. Uh, And many scriptures reflect this fact, uh, including uh, all of the events of Christ's career, including the darkest events of his career, the the events surrounding his crucifixion. Peter preaches in Acts 2.23, speaking of Jesus in Acts 2.23, he says, this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. What they did, they did because they wanted to. What they did, they did freely. And what they did, they did in according with God's predetermined plan in accordance with the decrees of God. Everything was according to God's plan, even those acts. And this is often said. It's echoed again in Acts chapter 4, as the early church is praying. And the church prays, For truly in this city 
they, uh, Acts 4, 27 and 28, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Predestined to occur. So the events of history and the events of Jesus' career were in accord with the predestined plan of God. And Jesus submitted himself, Paul tells us, to that plan. Again, in Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 11, something we relished as we went through the book of Ephesians together. Ephesians 1, 9, uh, Paul says that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him. Or I would probably translate it, probably did translate it, which he planned in him. The good pleasure of God which he planned in Christ. And then in verse 11, in him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I remember that verse by its Ephesians 1.1.1. makes me think of the Trinity. Uh, the, the counsels of the Trinity. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we're predestined according to his plan. The plan of that sovereign planning God. And then Ephesians 3.11. Paul in that chapter is talking about the revelation of God's purpose. And particularly of the church age. And he says this was in accordance, Ephesians 3.11. With the eternal purpose. Or I'd say the eternal plan. Which he made in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a, an eternal purpose, or very literally the Greek text says, a plan for the ages. A plan that encompasses all the ages, all of the rolling epics of history, is the carrying out of God's decreed plan, which he purposed to carry out in Christ Jesus. So there is uh, a rich bucket full of scriptures that point to the fact that God began everything with a plan. You see that in Genesis? I mean, it, it very deliberately starts out, doesn't it, with, with six days. That God's obviously not improvising. The first three days, he sets the stage for what he does in the next three days and crowns it with the creation of the man and the woman, uh, the creation of Adam to rule over all things under him, and only then he pronounces that the whole is very good. I mean, he had a plan. It all proceeds according to his plan. So, Let's look at the teaching of these texts. We've seen the text, now let her be their teaching. How do we put it all together? Christ's coming was, was not improvised. Christ's coming was not something God thought up after everything else he tried didn't work. No, I guess I'm going to have to pull this one out of the drawer. No, this was, this was the plan from before creation. It wasn't ad hoc. It wasn't, well, let's see what happens. You know, maybe, maybe this one will work. That was not the case. The sovereign God who declares the end from the beginning and accomplishes all his purpose had planned the coming and the career of Christ and every facet of that career. So Christ's career was the execution of a plan formed in eternity. And so it is to that plan that he submits himself that he submits himself and it takes him to the point of death on the cross. To do that plan required him emptying himself, as Paul says. It required him taking on the form of a slave, as Paul says. It required him humbling himself to the point of death, even the lowly, cursed death on the cross. All this was in accord with God's eternal plan and Christ submitted to it. And this is the thinking that's held out as our example. So, First point is fairly simple, though very deep. There was a plan, 
And we're pointed there by Paul's use of the word submitted. Now, secondly, the plan had a pivot. The plan had a pivot, P-I-V-O-T. And that's Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9. Pivot means that on which everything turns. Everything hinges on this. There's a point at which the entire plan would rise or fall, stand or fall, succeed or fail. And of course, being God's plan, it would succeed. And two aspects of that plan I want to single out from Scripture. First is that the pivot for this plan, the pivot, was primarily personal, which is to say the pivot was a person. Not just an event, the pivot was a person. And of course, that person is Jesus Christ. We see this in Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What's the next word? Therefore, God also highly exalted him. So this act of God in exalting the Lord Jesus Christ and giving him, after his humiliation, giving him the name which is above every name, this is a consequence of his submission. It pivots on his submission. Therefore, Paul says, because he humbled himself to the point of the death on the cross, therefore he was highly exalted. Everything hinged on that. And everything that comes after, and all God's future plans, hinge on this person and what he does in submitting himself to God's will. You think it through biblically, really, our race, by which I mean the human race, has only had two pivotal people, two pivotal men. Who's the first pivotal man? Adam, the first man. First man was Adam. Now, remind you of something we looked at Friday night, just a little slower maybe. God creates Adam from the ground. And there's something that is unmissable in Hebrew there that is invisible in English. The word for ground is Adama. Now, if I were to write it boneheadedly in English letters, it would be like A-D-A-M-A-H. Wait, what does that sound like? A-D-A-M-A-H. Well, that's just Adam with a ah added to it. And, and that is indeed the case. The, the name for Adam is Adam, and the word for ground is Adama. And in Hebrew, they look exactly the same. Adam is three letters, Adama is four letters, just the ad, addition of that ah sound. So the text makes very clear there's a connection between him and the ground. He's taken from the ground and given the role of ruling over the ground. But there's a connection. Who, who doesn't rule over the, the ground? Well, the angels, for instance. Well, they're greater in power and might. Why aren't they given rule over it? What are they? The Bible says, spirits. They're not made out of the ground. They don't have a connection with the ground. Adam does have a connection with the ground. He, and, and never forget it. It's very obvious. Every time you see the word, you think of the noun ground. Adam is made from the ground. He's connected with the ground. So why do I make so much of this? Well, we think when he sinned, that was a very bad thing. Amen, that was a very bad thing. For who or what was it very bad? Well, you say it was very bad for Adam, amen. Very bad for Eve, amen. Who else? All of his natural progeny, amen. Who else? The ground, creation, 
the ground was all, it all fell. It all was involved because it was his, because he was connected to it. And as he had been blessed and passed the test, the ground would have been glorified and glorious. But as he failed and and rebelled against God, well, thorns and thistles will it bring forth for you, God says. That's not natural, that's the curse. And scripture goes on at great length about this, that what does Paul say in Romans 8? That it, it, it groans and travails together, creation does, waiting for our redemption. What's the connection between our redemption and, and creation? We're seeing it right here. It fell when we fell in Adam. What would glorify it? Not ready for that yet. A little more about Adam. Paul says that it was subjected to futility. Why? Because Adam, the ruler, the erstwhile ruler of creation, plunged himself into rebellion. So this first pivotal man fell, took all his natural progeny with him, and took creation with him. So uh, who could uh, remedy this then? What could be done about this? Well, I mean, for one thing, obviously, God could remedy it by simply destroying Adam, his progeny, and the universe, and starting all over. It's not like he lacks for resources, right? He's got infinite resources to draw from, would not even raise a bead of sweat on his brow, so to speak. But that's not what he does. So what could actually write this creation there? Where could it come from? Could an angel do it? They are greater in power and might. But no, the angels didn't cause the problem. It wasn't caused by an angel. Sacrifice animals. Animals didn't cause the problem either. What created category caused the problem? A man. Okay, so you say a child of Adam would have to solve the problem. But there's a problem with that. Every one of them is part of the problem. Every natural child of Adam is born a debtor. Every natural son of Adam is born guilty, sinful, corrupt. And all of it broken. And not just broken, but, but corrupted, evil. And so obviously none of them could have it in him to solve the problem of which he is a part, and yet it must come from a human being. How could this happen? Well, we looked at this some Friday night, talking about the seed of the woman. I won't repeat that, but let's go on to the second pivotal person. I say there are only two. There's Adam, and there's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the other pivotal person. As one of the Puritan fathers said, and I'll I'll reword it a little bit, these two men have all men hanging from their belts, one or the other, hanging from the belt of Adam or hanging from the belt of Christ. They are the two pivotal men. Now, a number of scriptures teach this, and uh, this is going to be a long, full sermon. Believe me, the director's cut would be a lot longer. I I pulled things out, but I do want to look at some scripture with you. One great scripture that points this out is uh, Romans 5 really verses 12 through 21, but we'll just look at verse 12 and 18 and 19. Try to keep it simple. Romans 5, 12, Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then he gets kind of excited and doesn't finish that sentence till, till later. But who is that one man through whom sin entered the world and death through sin? That is Adam. That is the one man. Obviously, we believe what Scripture says. Adam was a literal individual. Through him, sin entered the world and death through sin. Now look at verses 18 and 19. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, everybody who is in Adam 
transgresses in Adam, has the guilt of his transgression. But then he goes on to say, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. The one brings transgression to all who are in him, and for Adam, that's all his natural children. So the other brings justification of life to all who are in him, all his elect. And who is that? Jesus, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience, you could say insubmission, it's a, a play on that word, the many were appointed sinners, even through the obedience or submission, the, the same word Paul uses in, in Philippians 2 to speak of Christ's submission. Through the submission of the one, the many will be appointed righteous. So the one man stands representing all his natural progeny and he falls and plunges them all into guilt with him. The other stands for all of those who, as we saw in John 17, the father picks and gives to him to give eternal life to them, or as Ephesians 1 says, he elects them to be in him. He stands for all of them and his submission results in a status of righteousness to all he represents. Two pivotal men. Paul says it again pointedly in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and 47. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Paul says, uh, talking in this chapter about the resurrection, he says, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Oh, there it is. The two pivotal men. The first Adam, the last Adam. Does not say second Adam. There's not going to be a third Adam. There's not going to be a fourth. It's not, not Mohammed, not Baha'u'llah, not anybody. First Adam, last Adam. And then in verse 47, the first man is from earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. The second of the two men I'm talking about. The first and last Adam. So there are two pivotal uh, characters, and Jesus is the pivotal character for the redemption of God's elect and of all creation. So... Everything that follows hinges on Jesus' submission to the Father, on the Son of God incarnate submitting to the plan of the Father, something we often see him saying and doing. Now, for an x-ray on this, there's no better passage to turn to than to Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, which is where we'll look next. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 spells it out gloriously. Um, you know Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 is the, the servant of the Lord who suffers and is cut off from his, for his people's transgression. And with, the, uh, with his wounds, we find peace. Well, this is part of that. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, and a glorious part. The prophet says, but Yahweh was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. This is his suffering for his people. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand, if it hinges on that. And then verse 11 says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Let's go back and just underscore 
If you would place your soul, or he would place his soul as some rendering, as a guilt offering, he'll see his seed and prolong his days, resurrection. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore I will divide for him a portion with the many, because he poured out his soul to death. So you see, the the father directed his son to die for the sins of his people, to bear their sins, to carry the wrath of God on their behalf, and he promised him a sure and certain result of that. So that's why I've tried to make this point many times, and I'll I'll keep trying to make it as long as I serve. Christ's work on the cross was an achievement. It was an accomplishment. It was not an attempt. He didn't try to do something. He absolutely succeeded in what he did. Why? Because the, pro- the Father promised him a result of his work on the cross. And a great many evangelicals, uh, they, don't, they don't think it through or they don't like the implications of thinking it through. And so they speak in terms of, of Jesus um, offering salvation or making men savable or other unbiblical phrases. Whereas what the Bible says, Christ says it is finished. And the Bible says Jesus came to save sinners. And Isaiah says that as the result of what he does on the cross, there is an assured result, which includes the justification of his guilty people, and it includes his exaltation, dividing the booty with the strong, his exaltation to glory, which we'll read more about in just a moment. Well, let me just remind you of Psalm 2, where we read about the anointed Son of God, and God says to his son, ask of me, and I will give you the ends of the earth as your possession. What does it say? I'm going to sing it like Handel if you're a fan of the Messiah, but uh, thou shalt dash them with a rod of iron. This is the promise to the Messiah of his kingdom and of his rule. And that is a consequence, a reward, if you will, for his obedience to the point of death on the cross. He went for an assured, promised reward. Psalm 110, another famous psalm, says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. When did he sit? Hebrews 1 tells us he sat after he had made purification for the sins of his people. Where did he do that? On the cross. So his sitting at the right hand of the Father is a reward for his being poured out to death for his people. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Boy, that takes you back to Genesis 3. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head. And here we are. His enemies are a footstool under the heel of his foot, you see. This is the fulfillment of that. Uh, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, have dominion in the midst of your enemies. So, This plan had a pivot, and the pivot was primarily personal. It was a person. It was one person. And it could only be that one person, God incarnate, Jesus Christ. So the plan had a pivot. The pivot was primarily personal. But secondly, continuing with the Ps, it was powerfully propitiatory. Powerfully propitiatory. The person sitting in front of you will thank you for not saying that out loud with me. Propitiatory, you just need to put in P-I-T-I-A-T in the blank. P 
P-I-T-I-A-T, propitiatory. Now, you all know what that word means. You know what a propitiation is. Talked about it many times. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. It's a sacrifice specifically that deals with the righteous wrath of God. And so this pivot is is powerfully propitiatory. Well, you know, it's easier to write than say. I I should have thought that through, but it was powerfully propitiatory. And we see that in Philippians 2, when we see that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was not um, incidental. That he would die that way was central. That was, in fact, John makes the point that he needed to die at the hands of the Romans because they would crucify him. Because he would be hung on a cross, or so to speak, on a tree. Now, let's back up to make sure we're ready to understand this. We need to remember, sin is not merely unfortunate. You know, like you hear every politician say when he, when he does something awful, he says, well, that was unfortunate. Well, no, it wasn't unfortunate, it was evil. But you don't want to admit that part. And sin is not unfortunate. It's not, you know, too bad that happened. And it's not even primarily damaging. We like that word better today, to speak of ourselves as broken. And boy, are we broken. We are broken. But we're broken because we're guilty. We're broken because we sin. It's sin that breaks us. And so our sin didn't bring just brokenness, but it brought guilt and it brought the righteous wrath of God. Because the holy, just God can't just wink at sin. Sin enrages him. Sin is an attempted deicide. Sin requires the holy judgment of God. And so for the effects of sin to be cured, the root has to be addressed because it brings the wrath of God. The curse, the death, the chaos and misery, all these are outworkings of the wrath of God. Doesn't Paul say that in Romans 1.18 and following? For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he traces the miseries of human sin, but these are all the outworkings of the wrath of God. So something needs to address the wrath of God if, if this miserable dilemma is going to be dealt with. You know, you can't just, well, what we really need is, is we need pollution solved and we need earthquakes stopped and we need people to be nicer and more money. No, you know, no. <laughs> that wouldn't solve the problem because it wouldn't do anything about the sin in our hearts and it wouldn't do anything about the wrath of God. Maybe not a big theme in pulpits today, but a big theme in the Bible. Big, big theme in the Bible. The wrath of God. And what is it that addresses the wrath of God on behalf of a sinner? a propitiation, a sacrifice designed to deal with his wrath. And that's just what Jesus was. And that's why he had to humble himself to the point of death on a cross, Paul says, because he would make propitiation, but to do that he would need himself to bear the wrath of God. The Bible says this a number of times. Romans 3.25 speaks of Christ whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Unlike the mercy seat, which is the same word in Greek, which is set way back and nobody can see it, Jesus Christ is put way up front and up so the whole world can see him. This is the mercy seat. This is the propitiation by blood. And we receive it through faith, Paul says. And then Galatians 3.13, even more pointedly for what we're looking at, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that in the big letters tells you it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Indeed, it's a quotation of Deuteronomy 21.23. That he who hangs on a tree is accursed, is accursed. 
And who hangs on a tree? See, now there's the real gift on the Christmas tree, but it's not a a pretty nice thing. It's a horrible, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking thing. As the Son of God hangs on a tree under the curse of God. Why? What had he ever done to deserve the, the curse of God? Not one thing. He deserved nothing but the blessing of God. Yet there he hangs under the curse of God. Why? Because that was the plan of the Father to redeem his elect, to send his Son to be a propitiation for them, to satisfy his wrath by becoming a curse for them so that we who believe in him would no longer be under the curse. So the curse falls on him instead of on us. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the ultimate act of God's love. And people say, oh, well, no, you're saying God was mad at us and Jesus came and fixed it. No, Jesus is God. God the Father sent God the Son. God saves us from the wrath of God. God saves us from the wrath of God. That's the love of God. And that's why Romans 8 can say there's therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8, 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus, because God condemned sin in the flesh of Christ, verse 3. There's no condemnation for us because the condemnation fell on him. There's not no condemnation for us because God redefined sin and, and you know, made a curve so we'd get in under the, under the uh, failing point. He didn't change the standards at all. He fully met his standards in the righteousness of Christ. He fully met the standards of justice in the death of Christ as the propitiation for his people's sins. So Jesus Christ was the pivotal person of the eternal redemptive plan of God. It was primarily personal and it was powerfully propitiatory. So he is the head of the new redeemed humanity against whom there is now no wrath from God as he's addressed the root cause, sin. So thirdly then, the pivot restores paradise, Roman numeral three. There was a plan, point one. Point two, the plan had a pivot, which was personal and propitiatory. Third, the pivot restores paradise, and that that is Philippians two, verses nine through 11. And this pivot restores paradise by accomplishing three wonders, three marvels, without which there could be no paradise restored. The first, he restores paradise by finally addressing sin. By finally addressing sin. Now we've talked about how he makes full atonement for it, but let me take you another step. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. This might be the the time to point out at at no extra charge. I've made the point to you that the Roman culture uh, appealed to um, uh, status-hungry aristocrats to pile up titles for themselves and never to give anything up, but just to add more and more titles. And Jesus is held up as our example because what? He made himself nothing. He, he had the position of infinite glory at the right hand of God, in the form of God, but he took on the form of a slave so that he might die a slave's death on the cross. But what's the consequence? He's given the name that's above every name by taking the path of self-emptying and self-humbling and death. God, he doesn't, God gives him the name that is above every name. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, is Jesus highly exalted today? Yes, he is. Does he have the name above every name today? Yes, he does. Does every knee bow and does every tongue confess him today? No, they do not. But a day is coming when that will happen. And that is necessary to the restoration of paradise. As long as there is one knee, one tongue that is not confessed and bowed to the Lordship of Christ, there can't be paradise. But a day will come when that does happen. And his obedience on the cross leads to that point of exaltation, which will result in a universal acknowledgement of his lordship. Now, that that acknowledgement will come by two paths, one of two paths. Either a person in this life will hear the gospel of Christ and will bow the knee and confess to God gladly that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that person will be forgiven counted righteous, adopted, reconciled, redeemed, sealed with the Holy Spirit, made a child of God, given an eternal... We could just go on and on. That is what happens for the person who confesses the Lordship of Christ in this life. But what does Hebrews 9 say? It is appointed to men once to die, and then what? Judgment. So for a person who refuses to confess the Lordship of Christ, does that mean he doesn't have to confess the Lordship of Christ? Oh no, he'll confess also. Oh no, he'll confess also. He'll do it hatefully, through gritted teeth, unhappily, and he will do it as he hears his judgment and condemnation pronounced. And he will have no choice but to admit, Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no appeal to that. There's no way around that. There's no escaping it. He will need to confess, Jesus Christ is Lord as he goes and begins serving his eternal sentence under the wrath of God. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So how is this finally addressed then? That's the key in in Philippians. I I want to point out to you Daniel 9, 24 through 26. And it's a passage that takes some opening up, which we can't do right now, so I'll I will assume some interpretation and just sum it for you because I want to point out six facets of these verses. Daniel, brokenhearted, is confessing the sins of his people as he's in Babylon and he's looking to God restoring and he wants God completely to restore his people and forgive them. And instead, the angel gives him God's plan and God's plan is expressed in the events of 70, every translation says, weeks. If it were me, I would use the word heptad, which is a word like dozen, you know? If I say a dozen, a dozen what? Well, you think eggs, but it could be a dozen tribes, it could be a dozen apostles, it could be a dozen anything, right? And this is just a group of seven. It doesn't mean seven days. In fact, it's not seven days. What it is, is it's seven years. These are 77s of years, or 490 years. The event, it's what the events of those years will accomplish as it affects Daniel's people and the holy city of Jerusalem. So with that really brief summary, let's look at the words. Verse 24, 70 weeks, which is 490 years, have been determined for your people and for your holy city to accomplish six ends. To finish the transgression, well, there's the problem. That's that's history in a word, transgression. It's it's just a matter of details, but that's from Genesis 3 up to Revelation uh, 20, 
that's the history of the world, transgression. And these weeks will finish the transgression. And what's more, to make an end of sin, which as Daniel has just confessed, that was these people's problem. Not bad luck, bad crops, bad enemies. It was sin, bad hearts. To make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy by fulfilling them all, and to anoint the Holy of Holies, where God is worshipped and is present. So you are to know and to have insight that from the going out of a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be, in brief, 483 years, and after those, or, uh, excuse me, 69 weeks, sir, 69 weeks, 69 of the 70, and after that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So there will be the, the, the 69 weeks will lead up to the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, who will die a violent death. And that leaves one last seven of years. And what's that seven of years? It's the tribulation period, yet, yet future, that is for Jerusalem and the world. So at the hinge of those weeks, Messiah is cut off, and then the last week finishes everything. And it is this that accomplishes finishing transgression, making an end of sin, making atonement for iniquity. Those are the things necessary to bring in the kingdom of God. Now, I can say that I, I've, I've come to believe that kind of the point of the Bible, of the history of the Bible, a, a subtext, the, the main point is the glory and kingdom of God. But the subtext lesson of the history of the Bible is that sin ruins everything. And that as long as there is any trace of unaddressed sin, ruination must follow. There is no possibility of the full coming of the kingdom of God while sin has not been fully addressed. And that's what these 69, 70 weeks will accomplish. Uh, and the hinge event, the pivotal event, is the death of Christ, the cutting off of the Messiah. And then comes the execution of what he's accomplished by that. So, by finally addressing sin first, second, Paradise will be restored by fully restoring peace. Which can only come after that first, as a consequence of that first. As long as there's sin, there can't be peace. So Philippians 2, 9 through 11, again says, Christ will be made Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. This is necessary fully to restore peace. Uh, and Jesus' work does that. Jesus' work is the key to that. His crushing of the serpent's head. Uh, Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Uh, there you see, it's his blood on the cross that is the key to making peace, not just people, but things in earth and in heaven, universally. So you see, does that mean everybody's going to be saved? No, you can't read the rest of Scripture and think that. Well, so what does he mean, make peace? Oh, you see, he means that everything is put in its right place. The redeemed of God are vindicated and glorified, and they reign and rule with him, and the unrepentant are judged and punished and locked up under the, under the wrath of God forever. This is pacification. This is peacemaking uh, with force and with power. And the key to it, as Isaiah 53 showed us, the key to it is what Jesus accomplished on the cross.
And so look at uh, Isaiah 11 for the, really the rest of the sermon's gonna be mostly scripture. So look with me at Isaiah 11, which will paint this out for us. Isaiah 11, I'll just give you a spoiler alert, is about paradise restored, but look where it starts. It doesn't start saying, well, God will just start a housing project for all the sinners and they'll learn how to be better people by it. No, it doesn't start that way. Look at Isaiah 11, 2 through 10. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, that's uh, David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So this is speaking of the son of David, the Messiah. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. So there's the Trinity. There's the Trinity. We, were, we learned in chapter seven and nine that this Messiah will be God. And here the spirit, the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So the key to the kingdom is the king, the king the son of David, on whom the Spirit of God rests in all fullness, who will judge in righteousness, who will not tolerate or permit sin of any sort, will deal finally with sin, as no other king could. Now look at the consequence in verses 6 and following. And this is not, I don't believe this is a metaphor. I don't believe this is symbolic language. I believe this is literal. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Well, you say wolves like to hang with lambs now. That's true, but only one walks away now. But then he will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and both will get up afterwards. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a young boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing baby will play by the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will do no evil, nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Oh, for that day. Then it will be in that day that the peoples will seek the root of Jesse, that's the Messiah, who will stand as a standard for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. So you see, with the addressing of the sin of man, nature is restored. And no longer is nature red in tooth and claw, but nature lives in peace. But it requires the Son of God humbling himself, taking on the form of a slave, dying on a cross, and turning the key which will end in the restoration of paradise. This is an achievement of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was promised him as his reward, so it is sure and certain as the resurrection. You say, wait, the resurrection already happened. Exactly. It's just that sure and certain. So, he addresses sin, he restores peace, and thirdly, paradise will be restored by forever bringing in the kingdom. Now again, you just see that in, in this the Philippians uh, 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord. So he will be not just a titular king, he will be king in, in, in fact, 
and in force. But now go back to the words that started our worship, Revelation 5, and let's read this more fully. And as I say, the rest of the sermon will really be mostly scripture. So Revelation chapter 5, this is an absolutely glorious scene. This is in heaven. John has been caught up into heaven, and he's seeing events that are happening in heaven. And in Revelation 5, he's seeing the throne room of God. And he is doing the best he can to tell us what he sees. So the one who sits in the throne is God the Father. And he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now just a moment here. What is this? Well, if you know Revelation very well, you know the, the rest of the book is seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven bowls. So what starts everything off? The seals. The breaking of the seals. The first seal broken starts things moving. And these things are the 70th week. They're the end time events. So the key to everything is this scroll with its seven seals. And for anything to get started, those seals are going to have to be broken, you see. So we see now back to this. Then I saw a, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Huh, now there's a good question. Who is the person who can start the culmination of history, these end time events? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So the initial answer to this question, who's worthy to open the scroll? The initial answer, nobody. Nobody. Oh, but read on. John says, then I was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This affected him. He knew with, if that doesn't happen, nothing else will happen, and nobody's worthy to, not all the kings, not all the prophets, nobody, nobody's worthy to open that. But then, one of the elders said to me, stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. How did he overcome? Well, we'll find out. If you don't already know, we'll find out. So he's from the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. We just read about that in uh, Isaiah chapter 11. This is the Messiah. He says, a human being, God the Son, he's overcome to open the book, to break the seals. And then I saw in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, a lamb standing. And what's the next? As if slain. You could tell this lamb had been slaughtered. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. So there it is, exactly what we read in Philippians and we've been talking about and about, that it is by his emptying himself, taking on the form of a slave, humbling himself to the death on the cross that he overcomes. And by that, wins the right to be the one who consummates history and break the seals and thus bring in the kingdom of God and reign in the kingdom of God. So, uh, he took the scroll in verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. See, there it is in just another way. 
It's because of his death on the cross that he won that right as God's promised reward. Because you were slain and purchased by God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He purchased them. That accomplishment on the cross made them his, the elect of God. From every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living, uh, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the might forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Well, there it is, my friends. There it is. There is the culmination of all this. This is what Jesus won the right to by his death on the cross. This is the salvation of, our, of all believers in our race, and it's the salvation of our universe. It all hinges on the person of Jesus Christ, and it all hinges on his work on the cross propitiating the wrath of God. And so one more verse, Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. So we pray thy kingdom come and his kingdom will come. And why will it come? Because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because he took on the form of a slave. Because he humbled himself to the accursed death on the cross. He is the key to all. So, what is Christmas then? It is a part of the pivot of God's plan for the ages. His plan for this universe. The sin of man ruined humanity and it ruined creation. God the Son became man that he might redeem men and restore creation by his work on the cross. And in that submissive death of Jesus Christ on the cross, he crushed the serpent's head. He accomplished perfect redemption for all of God's elect from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. He propitiated the righteous wrath of God, atoning for their sin. He provided them with his perfect righteousness and he reconciled them to God. So doing, he won the right to sit at God's right hand one day to return and sit on the throne of David and rule and reign and restore creation and restore paradise. Friend, you need this Savior. I need this Savior. You need this Lord. You need to confess him as your Lord now when that confession means salvation and not condemnation. You will confess him. You will confess him. But with all my heart, I urge you to confess him now. While that confession means reconciliation. While it means forgiveness. While it means adoption into the family of God. One day Jesus will come. Ah, that we come with him to rule and reign as a kingdom of priests. And when we do, it will all be because of who he is and what he did on the cross. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and thank you for the truth it tells us that we would learn nowhere else, and the glorious spotlight it shines on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for who he is, how dear and precious he is to us, how majestic, regal, mighty he is. Ah, Father, increase our love for him, our gratitude, our awe and reverence for him. And I do pray, as so often, for those here who have not yet bowed the knee and not yet confessed him as Lord, that the Spirit of God will lead them to see their deep need in his great glory. Draw them to him in saving faith. In Jesus' name, amen.